So I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you brought them, uh, to 2 Timothy. It's in the last 40 or 50 pages of your Bible. And if you didn't bring a Bible, hopefully there's a black one nearby you in one of the seat racks. You can pull it out. It's page 833. And uh, we're in this series called Endure. As you're turning there, maybe you've seen the banners up front. If this is your first time with us, we've been talking about the fact that there's probably going to be more challenging times coming for anyone that decides to live the Christian life uh, in the classical sense of believing that God's word is, is the real deal and things like that. So we've been thinking, how do we prepare for that? How do we endure so if those times do come uh, that we're ready? And the word endure means to remain, abide, press on, continue, persist, persevere. And today we come to the fourth and last chapter of this letter, 2 Timothy, where we've been studying how to prepare, how to endure. So as we think about this, I just want to mention to you uh, that we saw last week that Steve uh, helped us see at the end of 2 Timothy 3 that one of the ways we endure is through the equipping, the resource of Scripture. And um, when we get to this last part, I want you to see that the Apostle Paul is now, if you, haven't, if you don't know anything about 2 Timothy, it's a letter that the older Apostle Paul is writing from prison to a younger associate named Timothy who's mentored. He's about 30 years older than him. And he's passing the baton because now he's within the finish line. He knows he's going to die. Uh, he's, he's, he's already had his trial. He's going to die probably in the next few weeks or months. So he writes to Timothy probably the last letter that Paul ever wrote. And I don't know about you, but whenever I think about that, I think, what's he going to say? Well, you know, he's, he's got this perspective now with death so close. What's most important? What's risen to the top for him? And we're going to see some of that today. But in order to understand this passage, it's often called the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. I just want to tell you about something that happened to me this last week. I was invited to participate in a funeral of a good friend, an 89-year-old man um, who passed away. And uh, I was invited to be part of that service, and it was um, a great privilege. This guy walked with Jesus and had followed him for many years. And so at his funeral, we went to the cemetery afterwards, and uh, it was very cold outside, but I remember that uh, before we left the cemetery, the wife of this man, now a widow, asked for all of her grandsons to stand in front of the casket one last time. They had been pallbearers, and she just wanted to see them and then she said she didn't know she was going to do this till she did it, but she looked at them, and I was watching the faces of these young guys, and she said, uh, you know that your grandfather trusted in and followed Jesus, and now it's your turn, and I'm commissioning you, I'm, I'm calling you to follow Jesus too, I'm inviting you to do that too, follow in his footsteps. And I don't think I'm going to forget that for a long time. And in a way, this is what Paul is doing with Timothy. He's saying, you know, my run's about done here on earth. It's your turn. And I'm commissioning you. I'm urging you in the most solemn and serious way I can. Follow in my footsteps. You know I've mentored you, and now it's your turn. And so we're going to look at these verses. We're going to see, if you're following along in the notes, you'll see the outline there, the unchanging priority that Paul gives Timothy the changing receptivity that he warns him about, and also the greatest audience to live for. And uh, if you're following along in the notes, what I hope you'll see is this big idea today. If we neglect God's word, 
the Holy Scripture, Bible, we won't be ready to endure. If we neglect, lose, ignore, downplay, forget God's word, we won't be ready to endure. It is one of the gifts God has given us to endure, to be ready, to be equipped. And so today, I want to talk about how are we supposed to, again, uh, this is yet another message on how we hold God's word. What do we do with it? Okay? So um, what I want to do is we're going to start with verse 2 in chapter 4, not verse 1. We'll come to that later. And uh, I want to just ask you to um, read with me. I've listed it there in the New Living Translation. Would you read it out loud with me? And let's look at this unchanging priority. You know what? Before we do that, can I do something else? Third service, sometimes mind laps here. Have you ever heard of a plumb line? Have you ever seen one? Sometimes, nowadays, I'm told it's called a plumb bob. And by plumb, it's P-L-U-M-B, plumb. Uh, here's one on the screen here. It's, it's, a, it's made of a string, uh, and then at the bottom, it's, it usually has a weight. It's been tied to it. Oftentimes, that weight's pointed. Uh, you guys all heard of Bob Vila, this old house? Yeah, he, uh, here's what he says about a plumb line, okay? He says, a plumb line, also called a plumb bob, consists of a piece of string with a weight at the bottom, usually with a pointed tip. When you hang the line downward, the weight pulls the string taut and creates a straight vertical line. The plumb line, or plumb bob, employs the law of gravity to establish what is plumb, or straight. That is, what is exactly vertical or true. Some of us have seen levels for horizontal leveling. But a, a plumb line is for measuring vertical to see whether or not something's straight vertically. And he, Bob Vila goes on and says, evidence has clearly been found that this was something used by the ancients, even the Egyptian architects, when they built the pyramids. But we also know that along with this, you see how that plumb line's hanging next to a wall to see if it's straight. We also know that it it's comes from the Old Testament where God uses this same picture, Amos 7, 8. And the Lord said to me, Amos what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people. And he certainly has, and it is his word. And so again, I don't know if you've ever seen how plumb lines are used. Here's a couple pictures. You guys all seen the Leaning Tower of Pisa? You can tell it's not straight, right? Most of us say, I didn't need a plumb line to know that. And then here's a guy uh, using it in today. We have some masons in our church I know are familiar. And then also they use it in sports medicine for posture. Sometimes they can tell, you know, how is a person's posture? But the idea is a plumb line idea, okay? So um, again, with that in mind, uh, basically Paul is saying to Timothy, don't forget where your plumb line is. Don't forget what's going to help keep you understanding what's straight, what's true in a changing world. So, um, again, uh, now would you be willing to read that scripture with me? Sorry that I, uh, I forgot to mention that before. Let's read verse 2 out of the first gray box. Preach the word of God. Be persistent, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. Okay? So, the unchanging priority. In my notes, out to the right in that white space, that section there, I wrote these three words. Preach God's word. That has to be the unchanging priority. Timothy, I know there's lots of ways you can spend your time with the time you have left here on earth. Make this your absolute priority. Preach 
God's word. Don't preach yourself. Don't preach trends, other people's opinions. Preach God's word. The word for preach here, by the way, is from a picture of when kings had heralds. And when they wanted a message to be announced to their subjects, they would send a herald to the different towns, and that herald was responsible for reading every word and proclaiming it clearly so they could hear it. It wasn't up to the herald to say, well, you know, I think I'll change the words to this a little bit, or I think I'll say it this way. No, the herald's one job was to be faithful to proclaim what the king had given him to say. Now, what I want you to notice here is that along with my notes uh, where it says preach God's word, I also wrote the phrase, hold up God's word in that white space. Because here's why. What you're going to notice in these five verses, if you take the time to read them more on your own, is that this isn't only about the preacher's and teacher's job. This is also about how the hearers respond when they hear God's word. What we do with God's word is a team deal. It's something where we all need to make sure we not only preach God's word, but we hold up God's word, that it becomes a priority, that it's the plumb line for us. So let's just walk through this and talk about why. First, no words are like God's if you're following along. One of the reasons why we need to preach God's words is because there are no other words like God's words. Now, Paul already said that. We saw that last week. All scripture is God-breathed. We heard the people read that in different languages and sign language this morning. Wasn't that powerful? Just to realize that all scripture has a different ring of authority than any other. What do we mean by scripture? Steve said it last week. We believe that the Old and New Covenant, the Old and New Testament, are comprised by this. And again, we interpret the Old Covenant through the New Covenant. And so, again, understanding that all scripture is God-breathed. And so Jesus helps us understand this when he was fighting the evil one in the, in the wilderness. You know, for 40 days, can you imagine 40 days when you haven't eaten and the evil one comes to tempt you? Wow. So what does Jesus do? Because the tempter is powerful, is he not? But when he tempts Jesus, each time Jesus' response is the same. It is written. This is my plumb line. This is unchanging. This will not change, even though you try and tempt me away from this, even though you try and get me to lean or be crooked one way. I am going to let this be the plumb line of my life. Notice Jesus eventually would say in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, out to the right there, I've listed a number of scriptures, and I don't know if you know this, but I list those every week, and so does Steve and Brian and Brian and Chuck and Lee, and we, we, we write wherever we teach. The reason why we do that is because we want to you know, invite you. Some people tell us that during the week, you actually take these notes and actually look at some of those scriptures. I mean, I don't know if you'd consider yourself extra credit Christians or what, but the point is, is that it's, it's just an opportunity. So you can look at these all on your own if you want, but notice that again, Ephesians 6.17 reminds us that there's no way we can handle the onslaught of the evil one when he tempts us or tries to discourage us without the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have to be equipped. We have to make sure that this is part of us. There's no other words like God. There's no other that has the same ring of authority. And some people may say, well, my goodness, that sounds pretty arrogant to stand in a room like this when there's all these other world religions and when there's all these other teachings and friends. I don't say that in a condescending way. I'm just saying that's the testimony of Scripture and Jesus. And you have to wrestle with what do you think about that? 
I can just tell you that when I was 15 years old, even though my parents had been unbelievably helpful in showing me how valuable the word of God was, that in my own heart, I wasn't convinced of that. And so I remember just in all honesty, I began praying to the Lord. I was reading it. It wasn't like I was trying to ignore it, but as I was reading it, it was one night I just said, Lord, if, you, if this really is the book that you want to guide my life, to be the manual for living the Christian life, you're going to have to open my eyes because I can understand it intellectually, but I don't understand how it applies and intersects with my life in some of the ways that I know you mean for it to do. And I can, all, I can only tell you I'm standing here today by the grace of God that he did open my eyes to see that in ways that I could have never imagined. So here's part of what I want to say. This isn't necessarily about you or me getting smarter. This is about coming to a point where we, re- we say, you know what? What is going to be my reference point? What is going to be the plumb line for my life? You know, is it going to be the latest music group? Is it going to be some author? Is it going to be some human being, some person that means a lot to us? Or is it going to ultimately be God and what he says in his word? And so I just, again, I know there's always people here on any given Sunday. You're not yet a follower of Christ. We're just so glad you're here. And we hope that we can share this in such a way that you feel included when we teach on Sundays. But so that's the first thing. There's no words like God. One last verse. Can I show you one more? Look at Romans 10, 17. I often find courage in this. Let's read it together. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The idea here is that when God's word is held up, when God's word is preached, an amazing thing's going on, is that many times it can actually build our trust in the Lord. It can actually shore up what may have been sinking. I know there are some days that some of you have told me, you walk in this room and you're hanging by a thread. You're riddled with doubt. And you hear God speak through his word and it builds up your faith and your trust in God to keep running for the next leg of the race. Oh man, may we always hold up God's word because there are no words like God's words in the world. The second thing though is how do we preach God's word? How do we hold it up? Because you know as well as I do, some people hold up God's word and they do it in a mean spirit. They do it, you know, in a sloppy way. They do it. And so what are, what are some of the things we need to keep in mind? Those are addressed in this verse as well. The second line of the notes in that section is this. Stick with it. Stay ready. Never lose a sense of urgency. Stick with it. Stay ready. Never lose a sense of urgency. Where do I get that? If you look up at that first grade box in verse 2, it says, be persistent. In the New International Version, it says, be prepared. And the idea is, is be persistent, whether the times are favorable or not, whether it's popular or not, whether people like hearing it or not. Be prepared, be persistent, stick with it. How we need people that cannot be swayed by people's pressure. How we need people that will not say, well, you know, times have changed, culture have changed. No, this is an unchanging priority. This plumb line it doesn't change over time, even though other things may change. So how do I? How do I hold it up? How do I stick with it? And part of what this means is that sometimes it means standing in a difficult place. It means sometimes doing it week in, week out, whether or not we always fully understand the effect it's having. It's being faithful. And the third thing in this section that I want you to see is that the way, the tone that Paul urges Timothy to preach, 
if you're following along, patiently and carefully correct, rebuke, and encourage. Now, there's some popular words. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. But you know what? They're really good words. So let me just quickly say what correct is. Correct. Now, notice, by the way, back in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says all Scripture is God-breathed and given to us. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So again, that same idea is being brought up a few verses later when he says, now, make sure you use the scripture for that purpose. So what's correcting? Sometimes we hear correcting, we go, oh man, I've been corrected by some really angry people. Correcting is simply this, and this applies for parenting or teaching, coaching. It basically means, look, not this way, but this way. See, correcting always has the idea of setting a broken bone right, not necessarily just saying, hey, you're broken, or that's the wrong way. It's, hey, you know, let's go this way. This is the correct, this is the correcting, this will correct the direction you're going if you're willing to go that way. Second is rebuking. To rebuke someone, if you've ever been rebuked, it's somebody saying, stop that. And there are times to say, You know, in messages, when we're hearing God speak to us on a certain subject, when is that going to stop? That has to stop. It's killing your relationship with God. It's hurting other people. It's pulling you farther away from God's purpose in your life. And you know what? The book of Proverbs says is that you can tell a wise person and a foolish person. A foolish person will not take correction or rebuke, but a wise person sees the value of it and takes it to heart. But notice it doesn't just stop there. It says, and encourage. Romans 15 says the scriptures are given for our encouragement. And maybe there's been times where you have really just seen how God's scriptures, promises, or his reassuring words have kept you on your feet. And one of the things I love is how we can use the scriptures to encourage each other, to put courage back into each other, to keep running this race with Jesus, even though it may get tough, even though it may have ups and downs. And so he says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with the word of God when you're preaching. Make sure you just don't always do one or the other. Maybe you've been in circles where all they do is correct and rebuke, or maybe you've been in circles where all they do is encourage. He says, no, make sure you do both, but here's the tone. Patiently and carefully. Now, where do I get that? In the New International Version, it says, with great patience and careful instruction. I can't tell you how many times I've come back to those phrases in the last 30 years. Sometimes in my youthfulness, I just want to, like, give it to people. Or other times, I'd be thinking, you know, when I preach on Sundays, how come, like, people, like, just don't immediately respond? And, and the Lord had to show me, look, Jeff, you got to study this for hours, And you expect people to immediately, like, rise up in five minutes? Understand that sometimes it takes a while for this to process in our minds so that when we act, we're acting from understanding. We're acting from authenticity. So keep teaching. And other times it's because the teaching up here is maybe maybe muddled. And so, like, sometimes I go, let me try another way to say that, see? And the great patience, but if you've ever been with people that go, look, Let's learn what God's saying, and I want to make sure that I'm, I do this with great patience. The other thing is it says careful instruction. I love the word careful. If you unpack the word careful, what does it mean? Full of care. Have you ever had someone that taught you, and you could tell they were full of care for you? 
When I was um, first coming to Cherry Hills as a youth pastor, I was with my mentor friend, and I said, hey, you got any advice for me? I've never done this before. He says, I'll give you the same advice someone gave me 20 years ago. He said three things. Love them, teach them the word of God, and love them some more. Never forgotten that. You know, doesn't it make a difference? Could you tell that's Paul's spirit? Don't just hammer people with the word of God. Don't just see yourself above people. Learn together. Learn this with great patience and careful instruction. Just as God has been patient with you, keep sticking with it. And I don't know about you, but man, I'm so thankful for all the Sunday school teachers, life group leaders, children's workers, youth workers, and pastors in this church that God has given us to have this kind of tone. What a difference it makes. And so this is how we're supposed to hold up and preach God's word. And again, I just will point you back to chapter two, the last three verses there. You remember we looked at this a few weeks ago. There will be times when people will oppose God's word being taught. And when that happens, the one that's teaching and those that are holding up God's word, our reaction will be important. The Bible says is don't get into quarrelsome ways with people. Instead, be gentle, be kind to everyone, not resentful. You ever heard an angry preacher? Don't be like that. And, and be gentle in the hopes that God may grant them to change their mind, to come to repentance and to come to their senses and escape the trap from the devil. You know, sometimes people, it may take years before someone's mind changes, but if they look back and say, when they preached the word to me, they did it full of care and they did it with patience and they acted different than I acted towards them. It keeps the door open, friends. So that's how we're supposed to preach the word. Let me, before we go to the next section, let me just say one thing. I am so thankful for something my dad taught me when I first started out as a pastor. Some of you know that he was a pastor before me and a mentor, and he said, Jeff, I want to tell you about one of my biggest mistakes so you don't make the same mistake. He said, first five years I was a pastor, I thought preaching was me deciding every week what the church needed to hear, and then I'd look for scripture all week to back it up. He said, that didn't go real well. It also didn't have any authority. He said, I eventually stumbled on, almost by accident, to just preaching through the gospel of Mark. And we said, we want to see Jesus. As we made our way through all these different sections of the scripture, people started meeting the Lord. They started hearing the scripture speaking right to them. And I realized that I have no authority apart from the scripture. That if I will let the scripture speak to people's lives, God can change lives. He can transform us. Isn't that great? And so even when we speak topically, friends, we try never ever to speak without it being anchored in a certain text of the Bible so that we're careful and we want to make sure we do that. And one last thing about that is this, is when it says preach God's word or preach the word, who is the word? Jesus. In other words, make sure your preaching always points people to Jesus. That that's all of scripture is about Jesus, Jesus says in John 5, 39 and 40. It points to me. So make sure our preaching is about the word himself as well as the words he says in scripture. Now, the reason why he says do this, notice the second part, is because of the changing receptivity. He says, Timothy, the reason I want you to do this is because there's going to be times when the winds are going to change. It's not always going to be popular or favorable to, to, to preach the word. So I'm not like pepping you up to just go, hey, it's going to be a walk in the park. No, no. Look, let's look at the verse, next uh, verse, verse three in that second gray box. Would you read it with me? For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. 
They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. In my notes out to the right of this section that says the changing receptivity, I've just written this phrase, people won't listen. People won't listen. There will come a time. In fact, verse 4 says they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, the things that aren't true but seem popular and true. And so that's what's going to happen. There will actually be, I don't want to hear it. I don't care if that's true. It will be just a total lack of interest or desire. And there may even be more than that. But people won't listen. Now, what does he say about this? If you're following along in the notes, first he says people will follow their own desires instead. People will follow their own desires instead. Can I ask you a question? Is it wrong to have desires? Of course not. Is it wrong to be attracted to different things when those thoughts go through your mind? Of course not. It's what we do with those desires and those attractions. That's not the problem. He's saying, look, we all have desires, but when we let our desires lead us, where we follow our desires and put them in charge instead of God's word leading us and following what God says, and we do that habitually, that's going to be a problem. We already saw in 2 Timothy 3, there's going to be terrible times. Why? Because people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And if that becomes the overall thing we determine is how that's going to work, that's a problem. And so instead of a reference point of a plumb line, we go, my desires are the reference point. Basically, I decide what I want to do and that will be my guide. And it, this is a struggle for all of us. How many times have all of us sat in this room when the scriptures were being read or they were being taught or we've been reading them on our own and we could tell that it absolutely collides with what we want to do, with our own desires? Those are decision points. Those are character moments. And we got to decide, you know, what are we going to do? All of us have wandered away. All of us, when the plumb line's been placed next to our life, have been leaning or gone astray, right? The question is, is that going to be the overall trajectory of our life? Or when that happens, will we let it correct us and bring us back to center line? And so he says, there's going to come a time where no matter how hard you teach, no matter how carefully you teach, no matter how patiently you are, there's going to be people that will blow you off. And these aren't people just outside the church. You can expect that because they don't necessarily believe in all this stuff. I'm talking about people that said they named the name of Christ and they follow their own desires instead. The second thing is, is it says they'll look for teachers who say what they want to hear. They'll look for teachers who tell them what they want to hear. Now, the idea here in the New International Version, it says they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Itch that right here. Tell me what I want to say. And the idea is, one of the other translations says they'll accumulate for themselves teachers. Here's, here's the thinking. In order to rationalize rebellious, disobedient, or you know, apathetic behavior, what they'll do is they'll say, well, you know, I'm not real jazzed about what you're saying. You know, let's see if there's somebody else that's like more in tune with my desires. In fact, let's find as many as we can so that then I can always say, do you see how many of these guys compared to you? And here's what I want you to see. God says, Timothy, even if you're the only one, stick with it. 
One of my favorite passages on this subject is 2 Chronicles 18. And uh, look at what happens here. This is when King Ahab, who was one of God's, you know, chosen people, but he had gotten totally wicked. And uh, here's, here's what happened. Uh, Jehoshaphat and him were considering going to battle. And he says, you know, all these prophets were telling him exactly what they wanted to hear. So Jehoshaphat, who really did honor God, said, there is still, you know, is there any other prophets that can like, <laughs> any other prophets? It doesn't sound like any of these prophets are really tuned into God. There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire the Lord, Ahab said, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. Now look what happened. So they send a messenger to get Micaiah. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what God says. Now eventually Micaiah would be put in prison for what he says next. But it became fulfilled even though he was hated. And you know what? Friends, every one of us who stand up here are capable of buckling. If you only knew how human I am, I could buckle. But the word from Paul to Timothy is this, don't buckle. Be faithful, stick with it, and make sure you're not more interested in popularity or comfort Hold it up as humbly, as patiently, as carefully as you possibly can. Because when the winds start to change and it becomes crazyville, the need for a plumb line will be greater than ever. And his word can be that. And so let me just ask you, what are some of the things that people inside the church today are tempted to turn from who are tempted instead of believing what God says, what are some of those things? I could name, I'm sure, quite a few, but let me just name several. The first is this. People inside the church, I'm seeing the winds change as far as believing that Jesus Christ is the only way. Nowadays, people are saying more and more commonly, even among churches that name the name of Christ, you know, Jesus isn't the only way. He's a good way. He's a really good way, but he's not the only way. You know, that's too arrogant to say. And if it's said with arrogance, then that's unacceptable. But, you know, what do we do with scriptures like this? For there is no other mediator between God and men except Jesus Christ, the only one that can bring us back to God and make us right with God. What do we do with passages like Acts 4 that say, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. What do we do when Jesus says, I am co-equal with God. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. What do we do? And there's a lot of pressure in our culture that goes, you arrogant people. And you know, again, some of that is because we have been arrogant when we say it. God forbid. We are not better. We are not superior. 
It is total grace that God would even reach out to us with a mediator. Therefore, we must believe that Jesus is the only way, even if everyone, everyone says otherwise. Because if that's not true, we are with, among most people without hope and most to be pitied. But the second thing is this. This leads to the next one. Is what about heaven and hell? What about Judgment Day? Highly unpopular. I remember on June 1st, my last day before I went on sabbatical and I preached here on hell. I mean, you could feel the heaviness in the room. And you know one reason why? It's because all of us have loved ones and friends and coworkers and neighbors that if we care about them, we don't want hell to necessarily be real and them go there. But Jesus came and warned about hell he said, what you do with me, what you do with God's offer of salvation is everything. It's the ball game. Not just so you go to heaven or hell, but also so how you live differently here. And here's what I want to ask. You know, obviously some Christian pastors who in many ways, I admire their giftedness. I admire so many things about them. But when they start to say there is no hell. Wow. That's a moment of truth. And I, guess I want to ask you, have you grappled with that? What do we do? What do we do? Do we hold up the word or not? Here's a third one. This will get every one of us. Sexual purity. Our culture literally is telling us that it is wrong for God to expect us to pursue sexual purity. That it's impossible. And I will say this, as our culture gets more and more intoxicated, it becomes more and more challenging, does it not? But I, I'll, I'll just tell you several things. I, I'm so thankful that my youth leaders, when I was in high school, challenged me to pursue chastity and abstinence instead of following my own desires. I'm thankful that when I was Walking away from the Lord, they still stuck with me patiently, but kept calling me back to center line. I know that there are, and when Jesus spoke of sexual morality, he was speaking of any kind of sexual practice outside a covenant relationship, one flesh union between a man and a woman. Highly unpopular today. Therefore, I know people that when they're wrestling and tempted with adulterous thoughts and adulterous desires, they have coworkers and friends, sometimes even Christians, that'll say, God wants you to be happy more than he wants you to be holy. And so they'll just justify that, rationalize that. There's also the idea of couples, you know, that are in marriage, but they're using this great gift of sex that's meant to bond us in marriage. They're using it in power plays, or they're using it to be demeaning and dominating of other people. That is never God's will, and that needs to be held up carefully. Sometimes the Bible's been used for people to manipulate other people. And friends, right now, I can't even speak in a room like this without knowing that some of you have been violated by other people, and you know as well as I do how much you wish they would have appreciated sexual purity. But here's the toughest one of all in our culture these days. Same-sex attraction and relationships. Probably not a month that goes by. 
that I don't have someone stop down and say, I've been invited to a, a wedding of a relative or a friend and they're lesbians or they're, they're gay. What do I do? Wrestling with parents that say, how do I respond when my child comes out? What do I do with this whole issue of our nation now believing that that is acceptable in God's sight to marry? And I want to say a couple things before I go any further. One is this. I am not talking about this right now because this is of greater concern to God than the other things I just talked about. This is not the unforgivable sin or that kind of relationship is not one that God hates more than others or is against people like that. And I want to say the second thing. I want to say on behalf of the Christian church, please forgive us if you have same-sex attraction for using the scripture as a bully club sometimes, as, as an incom, uncompassionate, just throwing out the truth. Friends, Jesus was full of grace and truth. We must be the same. But how do we show compassion without compromising? So I want to just say this to you. Again, the elders have all listened to this. The pastor, Steve and I, this is the best I'm going to put a link up here on the screen. If you're wrestling with these things, if you wonder, you know, what do I do with all this in this particular subject, these, you may want to write these down, cherryhillsfamily.org backslash talk hyphen one dot mp3 and cherryhillsfamily.org backslash talk hyphen two dot mp3. These are two messages. It'll take almost two hours to listen to. I hope you'll listen to the whole thing. They're messages by John Dixon. They are the most careful teaching from the scripture I have ever heard on gay and lesbian relationships and also same-sex marriage. Not only talking about what does the scripture say, but also what are the arguments against what the scripture says that have to be considered. Also talks about what do we do with the homophobic reactions that many times the church has embraced. And also how do we engage with people in a way that would please Jesus rather than embarrass him like we have so many times. And these are tough issues, but how do we show compassion without compromise? How do we hold up both grace and truth as Jesus did? These are challenging things. I think that's well worth your time. I just re-listened to it again this week. Uh, it's been some of the most helpful teaching I have ever heard in my life. But we wanna be a church where people can walk through these doors and not feel condemned but also feel helped and challenged to live the Christian life no matter what your orientation is, no matter what your past has been, no matter what your background is. We want to be a church that pleases Christ. And that leads to this last thing. And by the way, I was going to give one more. Thanksgiving's coming up this week. And if you were in the third service last week, I said differently. Uh, I said this would be the Sunday night before Christmas. I apologize. <laughs> but Thanksgiving is just in four days. And the last thing I want to just tell you is that many times Christians are, they tend to throw out reconciliation. The passages that challenge us to make things right when we've made things wrong or we've been hurt. I once had someone tell me in another church, I will never forgive. Uh, that's what they're going to do with a plumb line. I hope they change their mind. But I'm saying is, what do we do? And I'm not a dummy. Thanksgiving time brings out all kinds of tension in families and relationships. I know that some of us have tried to make things right and it's still messy 
and we may live the rest of this earthly life with that being a challenge. But here's the question. Are we blowing off the Holy Spirit's convictions to make things right and humble ourselves and do everything we can to repair what we may have done or to think well of people that have hurt us? That's so huge. Those are just several that sometimes inside the church we turn our ears away from the truth instead of letting his word be lifted up in our life. So this leads to this last thing. What's the greatest audience? We'll go back to verse one. Here's how he started this whole charge, this whole commission. We read, read verse one with me out loud in that, second, in that last gray box. And so I solemnly urge you before God and before Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Now to the right here, I've written this phrase, please Jesus. I'm not saying that as a phrase to talk to Jesus. I'm saying make it your goal to please Jesus above all else. Not to please people, not to please yourself, but to please Jesus. Make that your goal because he's the greatest audience. You realize right now, even though we can't see him, we are in Jesus' presence. He is alive. He is risen from the dead. He is Lord. And that will become crystal clear in the coming days when he sets up his kingdom in full. But notice what he says here if you're following along. We live in Jesus' presence, the judge of all. The judge of all. That means that someday, whether you're prepared for it or not, or whether you believe this or not, you and I are going to stand before Christ. Jesus said in John 5, all judgment has been entrusted to me by the Father. He will be the one that every one of us stand before. If we've rejected him, that's going to be a terrible day. If we have trusted in him, that's going to be an incredible day we can actually look forward to because he will be our righteousness. His cross and resurrection is what makes us able to stand in his presence without fear of recrimination. But again, for those that, that, that have refused willfully and that's why I just want to say, whenever I preach the word, I just want to appeal in every way I can with the time you have left, what have you done with Jesus? Because he's reaching out to you and he's made a way for you. And what you do with him is huge. The second thing, if you're following along, is that he'll appear again to fully set up his kingdom. This word appear is the word we get epiphany from. And epiphania was when a king would come to town and so people would get ready for this king. You can imagine how the streets would be swept clean and everybody would get ready for his appearance. The Bible says Jesus is coming again. He's going to crack the sky. Every eye will see him. And on that day, there will be no do-overs, no changing of minds. It'll be where we stand with Jesus. The question is, are we preparing for that day? And here's where endurance comes in. If you believe that Jesus is coming again to set up his kingdom, then that day is a day you can look forward to. As Paul's going to say in just a couple verses later, we'll study it next week, I look forward to the crown of righteousness he's going to give me, not because I deserve it, but for all who long for his appearing, we're also looking forward to that. We long for his appearing. We can't wait to see him in his uneclipsed glory. And on that day, when we see him, every one of us that have chosen to endure and hold up God's word instead of cave are going to go, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it. You are not crazy if you decide to be faithful to Jesus. You're not crazy. 
it will be worth it all. And we as a church need to live gloriously in the presence of the greatest one who will help us preach the word and be changed by the word. The last statement there before I give it to you is this. Verse 5, I didn't read it to you, but here's what it says. But you... Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. In other words, keep holding out the message and hope of Jesus, the grace of Jesus to people, the grace and truth of Jesus. Fulfill or discharge all the duties of your ministry. Go the whole way, Timothy. Stay faithful. I love those two words. But you. Every person in this room, including me, has to decide what we're going to do. You know, the world's going to do this. Other Christians may do this. But you, what are you going to do? And I'm challenging you to hold up the word of God in your life, to let it be the plumb line, the reference point in your life when everything may change. This week I got a text from a college student in our church. And here's what they wrote about a message they heard online from our, our series just a few weeks ago about being useful to the master. Thank you so much for last week's message. I'm so grateful for God placing people in my life this past week, challenging me to cleanse and rededicate myself. I absolutely need to hear that. And it's life-changing to say the least. I pray I can always be open to being held accountable and not afraid to ask for this. And I thought to myself, this college student gets it. And so here's the last phrase. Lord, come what may, may we trust and obey you in your word. And so before we sing this song called Ancient Words, here's what I want to say. If I get hit by a bus, Cherry Hills, and I almost did in England one time. <laughs> commit to Christ. That you will hold up God's word, no matter what happens. Because we will never regret it when we see Christ.